fall out of your chairs when I say that we're going to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. Please turn with me there. First Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Here now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The the grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. William Bates introduces our topic today in the following. The exercise and effects of pure love principally respect the soul, the more excellent and immortal part of our friends. We are commanded to exhort one another while it is called today and to provoke one another to love and good works. Exhortation includes instruction and admonition, the giving counsel how to preserve the purity and secure the salvation of the soul, how to prevent sin and to cure it by the conviction of conscience when ignorant of its duty, by the excitation of the affections when cold and sluggish, and direction to order the conversation aright. The performance of this duty is inseparable from pure and unfeigned love, and the neglect of it is an argument of deadly hatred. Hmm. Don't hold back, Mr. Bates. Tell us how you feel, right? So we are moving on from our our time uh, studying saving faith. I pray that you have uh, profited from that study. I think... It was 22 sermons long. Uh, I will say that we could have gone on for perhaps 22 more. There's still a lot left unsaid there. But there's been, I pray, some good instruction and, and some help to you that was uh, taught there. And I do thank the, the, the uh, many of you who came to me during that series uh, encouraging me. It's... It's uh, always a good thing to encourage your pastor in a good thing, right? Please never encourage me in an evil thing. Please don't do that. So we, um, we talked about in that final look of verse 21 uh, that, you know, this is a, uh, that our faith and hope might be in God. That faith is faith in Christ, but it is also faith in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. We cannot and ought not in our faith to separate them. When we say we have faith in Christ, we are really saying that we have faith in God. 
We, we understand that wonderful and important doctrine that, that has been taught since the days when the, when the early councils of the first four centuries were, or maybe five, were hammering out the, the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of the Trinity. And we, we understand that great big long Greek word perichoresis. And what I mean by that, children, is that the persons of the Trinity are not separate and distinct persons, although they are separate and distinct to the, to the effect that the Father is not the Son and the Son is not the Father and neither of them are, are, are the Spirit, but they are not so distinct to, present or to prevent an interpenetration of their thoughts and wills and minds together. They are still one God. And so very often in Scripture when the word God is used, sometimes it's referring to God the Father, who is the principal person of the Godhead with regard to his authority in the economy of redemption. When considered apart from that, when we consider God as he is in himself, we consider those three persons to be the same in substance, equal in power and glory. And yet when we consider them with regard to their economic works of salvation and judgment, then what we have is we have God often put forth as God the Father in Scripture. Sometimes God triune is being spoken of here. And I think that's what Peter is doing here. He is speaking of God the triune. And the reason I say that, that your faith and hope might be in God, remember, first of all, uh, a few verses back, he said that, that it was by him, by Christ, that we believe in God. Jesus will tell his disciples at the beginning of the upper room discourse, he will say, let not your hearts be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. Remember that? Jesus will say to Philip, if you've seen me, Philip, you've seen the Father. You see, Christ is not about separating himself from his Father, but drawing the conception of deity together with he and his Father. And then in the verses that we have before us, especially verse 22, we hear about that it is by that gracious Spirit that we have what we have from God. So, This is God the triune. Our faith and hope might be in God the triune. Um, And so we have uh, Christ declares, the Father himself loves you and hears your prayer. You don't need to ask anything in my name. And what he means by that is, well, actually what he says in that passage is, you'll ask me nothing. You'll ask my Father. You'll go directly to him because he loves you and he will hear you. And he will answer your requests. We have faith in Christ, the risen Savior. And we have faith in the Spirit of God as the illuminator, the one who brings all that Christ has done for us to us. He will take what is mine and declare it to you, Jesus says to his disciples. So the end of verse 21 says that our faith and hope might be in God. That is God the triune. So now we move on to these last four verses of this chapter. And I have, it uh, looks like, seven points of emphasis to, uh, to, to get through with you over these next few weeks. The first point is that our souls have been 
purified. You've purified your souls, is how Peter puts it. And he uses a very interesting piece of Greek grammar there. He uses a perfect tense. And most of you students will remember that the perfect tense in Greek means it's something that has happened and is completed in the past. But what's being emphasized is its ongoing relativity to the present. That it relates to the present. That there's these results that are effectual and that continue. This is a perfect participle which emphasizes that continuation part. And so this is you have been purified in your souls and this purity is maintained. It is advanced. It, it, it exists and it continues to exist. Beloved, the people of God are pure. We have purity of soul, Peter says. This is who we are. We'll talk about what that means. Secondly, he says that this purity of soul is done by the Spirit of God. Right? Notice you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit. This obedience of the truth that we have is through the Spirit. Like we talked about earlier, the Word and Spirit, they always work together, don't they? Yeah, to have the word without the spirit is not to have true faith. And to have the spirit without the word is not to have true faith. We must have them both together. The third point is we are said in this purification to have unfeigned love of the brethren. It's something that we have. And then in the fourth point, it is something that we are commanded to maintain. See that ye love one another from the heart fervently. Notice we have it, and yet we're commanded to maintain it. Part of that ongoing stuff we talked about earlier. Point number five. All of this is by the word of God. And then finally, uh, in this section, we have this wonderful statement about the preservation and eternity of Scripture. So, we're just going to begin working through these points, but I will tell you that before we're done with this, we're going to have a sermon on the preservation of Scripture, because this is what Peter's talking about here. And notice how important it is. Notice what he will say just by way of anticipation. Look at this. He says, all flesh is as grass. He says, you have been born again. But not by a corruptible seed, but by incorruptible. By what? By the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is grass. Beloved, if it is by the word of man that you have been regenerated, you're going to wear out like the word of man does. That God has preserved his word is part and parcel of how he preserves his people. If we are begotten again unto a lively hope, is how we said it back at the beginning of the chapter, right? Begotten again through a lively hope, and here now being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. If that being born again is by the, by the Spirit and Word of God, by those eternal things then 
your eternal salvation is secure. But if we're talking about the word of man, you and it will both wear out. All flesh is grass. And so the preservation of the Bible, beloved, is a salvation issue. It is and remains a salvation issue. You'll hear people say things like, oh, Pastor Riddell, you know, this stuff about the text that you all go on about, that's not a salvation issue. I beg to differ. It is. We must be assured that what we hold in our hand is the very word of God. Now, you're, uh, you are a people blessed in that six times every Lord's Day you hear a passage of Scripture read and then you hear, hear now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. And then at the end of that, may God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word or some words to that effect depending on who's up here. Why? Because we, us up here, we want to remind you and us that this is the very word of God. And we want to receive it like the Thessalonians did as it is in truth. Not the word of men, but the very word of God. Because, beloved, you can't be saved by the word of men. Okay, so that's where we're going in the passage. We will talk about providential preservation. We will show that from the Bible. It may get a little technical at times, but uh, we will do our dead level best, the Lord helping us, to make such things understandable to those who have not studied. We don't all need to be Dean John Bergen in our understanding, and frankly, very, very few of us could ever be a man of that understanding. Uh, but we do want to have a biblical understanding so that we can identify when someone is trying to pull the word of men over our eyes. Right? Okay, very good. And one of the things I do plan on doing with you is showing you why it is, is such an important thing by taking you to some of those key passages that are cut out of modern Bibles or doubt being thrown upon those passages by footnotes or relegating the passages themselves to a footnote saying ancient authorities didn't have this. While I'm on the subject, one second here. If certain ancient authorities didn't have it, that is a truth statement. Now, what are the implications of that truth? The implications of that truth are what's important. Not that a few manuscripts in the ancient world didn't have this verse in it or that verse in it. Right? Okay, it's true that there were some corrupted manuscripts. Everybody admits that. Just saying, however, to the people of God in a published written text of Scripture, ancient authorities don't have this verse. What does that do? Well, it certainly makes you wonder, doesn't it? Does it belong or doesn't it? We'll show you how you can turn away from such doubts as that as we're preaching along, Lord willing, and God's grace helping us. All right, well, let's dive into our passage then after that brief introduction to a new section. <clears throat> so notice, um, seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth, 
through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. See that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. This faith that was spoken of at the end of verse 21 is a purifying faith. It's a purifying faith, beloved. How do you know, like we talked about last week, and we gave six marks of true saving faith, didn't we? What was one of those marks? We said it it, it is an obedient faith. We said that. We used several passages of Scripture, but the Apostle James particularly, right? Notice what Peter says here after this wonderful discussion on faith, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God, seeing that ye have purified your souls. The faith that is saving faith is a purifying faith. It cannot be otherwise, beloved. Now there are several places in scripture where that is taught. I want to show you that so that it's not just, you know, Pastor Todd telling you this, but we see this from the very word of God. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, for our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And ye became followers of us, And of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that you became samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place, your faith to Godward. Hmm. Your Hmm. Okay. I'm sorry, I read my notes incorrectly. I hate it when I do that, but I do that, I do that from time to time, and the Lord has me do that to keep me humble. First Timothy chapter one, not first Thessalonians chapter one. Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned, from which some having swerved have turned aside unto vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. May I say that that passage right there from 1 Timothy chapter 1, it does not fit the mold of many, uh, of the separation that many have in their minds between faith and works, between gospel or practice, if you will, and doctrine. Don't we hear that we can all be united in practice if we can't be united in doctrine? Haven't we heard that before? 
Haven't we heard that it's doctrine that divides us, although our practices may be very similar? Haven't we heard that? Well, this passage doesn't fit into that mold. The faith that we have is, what does Peter say? It is by obedience to the truth. What does Paul say here? He says that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for sinners. Now what Paul is doing here is he's emphasizing that second use of the law. He's not saying that there is no use of the law to the righteous. But in his press here toward Timothy, and in the ministry that Timothy had, speaking against those vain janglers, he's going to remind him that the law has this particular use, that it is to convict men of their sins and to draw them to Christ. If we make the assumption in the church, like the um, 17th and 18th century congregationalists did, that they would have a regenerate church membership, well, why would we ever preach the law then for that reason? Right? We would be assuming that everyone that's here is regenerated. Of course, the apostle doesn't do that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 18 through 20. Keep pressing the law of God so it will convict us and convert us as we hear the remedy for our sins, as we are drawn to Christ and the perfection of his obedience rather than trusting in our own. Keep preaching the law so that we will be disapproved of legalism and shown the depths of our falling short of the glory of God. Keep preaching the law so that we will have it to speak to the world out there what God has truly commanded that men other than those who are here may come under its its conviction. So what does Paul say here? Well, he gives a list of sins, doesn't he? Things that you might expect to read in, say, Ephesians 5, 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, maybe the works of the flesh in Galatians 5, 17 and following, and other places like that. And then what does he say? Notice, according, sorry, if there be anything that is contrary to sound doctrine. Beloved, when we preach the commands of God and what behavior and practice God requires of his people, guess what we're preaching? Sound doctrine. We don't want to take the word doctrine and build it up on a, quote, sermon about the Trinity, you know, or something like that. Give me one of the ologies in doctrine. Right? One of the ologies. Theology proper. uh, uh, Ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. Soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. That's doctrine. And then this other stuff, pastor, that's not doctrine. Well, Paul says that it is. And that when people are out of the way in their behavior like this, that it is contrary to sound doctrine according to my glorious gospel, he says. We want to speak better language than that. We want to speak biblically pertaining to what doctrine truly is. There is no separation between doctrine and and practice in scripture like many would tell us today like we said earlier peter will tell them that they have obeyed the truth how do you obey the truth he's just told them in in verse 21 by faith it is faith that we receive and obey the truth 
Our confession says as much, doesn't it? Listen to Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 14. I believe this is paragraph 2. By this faith, a Christian believeth to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word for the authority of God himself speaking therein and acteth differently upon that which each particular passage thereof containeth, yielding obedience to the commands, trembling at the threatenings, embracing the promises of God for this life and that which is to come. But the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. People can tremble at the threatenings and yet not rest upon Christ. This is what our confession is getting at here. People can yield obedience to the commands and yet not trust in Christ. They can have an overt or outward obedience. But beloved, because people can do that, doesn't mean it's foul doctrine to teach we should do that. We should obey. That's a part of good doctrine. That's a part of good teaching. Didascalia in the original. So rather than separating doctrine and practice, let's bring them all together because what Peter does in 1 Peter chapter 1 and what Paul does in 1 Timothy chapter 1 is to bring them together. He'll say practice is doctrine and Peter will say and you can obey the truth. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Isn't obedience for practice? It's not for truth, is it? You don't obey the truth. You receive it. No, you also obey it. That's what Peter says. And Paul says that moral teaching is sound gospel teaching. I don't mean moralistic teaching. I mean teaching the morals, the ethics of the Bible and pressing that to the people of God. Beloved, this is a promise of God in chapter 36 of Ezekiel, in chapter 31 of Jeremiah, God has promised that in the days of the New Testament, in the copious pouring out of the Spirit of God, which is purchased by Christ in His cross work, and His resurrection and ascension to glory, that what will that Spirit of God do? He will take the stony heart out of your flesh. He will put a heart of flesh in your flesh. And that new Spirit will be upon us, and He will cause us to walk in all of God's ways. In other words, our souls will be purified. Perfectly? No, not in this life, but purified nonetheless. They have had a work of purification performed on them by the Spirit of God, such that we may not know everything that the Bible teaches and therefore may not practice everything we should, but the characteristic of the pure heart is to advance when the knowledge advances and to go where the Lord leads us with every new step. That's what obeying the truth is. We heard earlier, didn't we, about the sign that the Sabbath is to the people of God. I can tell you very clearly that in many years of my own Christian life, I had no idea that we should keep the Sabbath day holy. I had read the Ten Commandments, but I assumed what my teachers had told me, that they were passed away, that they didn't apply to me. 
especially that Sabbath-keeping stuff. Because you know why? It's not reiterated anywhere in the New Testament. Of course, this pastor believes it is in Hebrews 4.9. There remains a Sabbatism for the people of God. All that being said, I went along for, for many years not knowing I should keep the Sabbath day holy. We have dear friends that, that we uh, used to labor with in, in the uh, church. And they just recently, the Lord opened their eyes. They followed the teaching. They obeyed the truth. And now they understand to my great joy that the fourth commandment is viable, required, and a blessing to the people of God. And they're now enjoying the blessings of obedience and obeying the truth in that. But beloved, it's that way with everything, isn't it? Don't we confess that not only very often are we ignorant of what God requires, and and, and we are culpable in that ignorance. We are culpable in that we are fallen and corrupted. So we don't search out our duty as we ought. But secondly, we are culpable in that there are some duties that we know that we're loathe, sloth, or inattentive to perform. Right? But the characteristic of the Christian life is to confess and put away such sins and to learn to follow the Lord more perfectly all the time. The Apostle Paul will write to the Thessalonians a little bit later on. He says, you know, you're doing some good things, but I want you to do them more and more. More and more. And this is what the regenerated heart, the purified heart desires, is that we would follow Christ more and more closely. So if we turn back to 1 Peter chapter 1, notice what Peter says there. Seeing ye have purified your souls. Beloved, the the uh, the faith in Jesus Christ, that faith that we have in him, that saving faith, is a purifying faith. We see this often in the pastoral epistles. 1 Timothy 6.3, 2 Timothy 1.13, 2 Timothy 4.3. This moral instruction in scripture is to be believed, it is to be received, It is a part of preaching sound doctrine. So preachers of the word of God are to preach the indicatives and the imperatives. And in preaching the imperatives, I will tell you that having read through the pastoral epistles, sometimes as many as five times a day, because I want to know what my boss has told me to do, I hear a lot of preaching that is put in the mouths of preachers there that has to do with moral instruction from purified hearts. Let's take a look at some of those. First of all, in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 3. We'll begin reading in verse 1. Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them because they're brethren, but rather do them service because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort. If any man teach otherwise 
and consent not to wholesome words, even to the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, wherein whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. What did Paul say that those words were contrary to? Contrary to sound doctrine. They are not wholesome words. And Paul cuts right to the chase there. If you tell a slave in this first century context here, if you tell that slave that his master, because he's a believer, ought to release him, because, you know, you can improve your economic condition as a freeman. Paul says, if anybody tells you that, He's not consenting to sound doctrine in wholesome words. He's proud, knowing nothing. He assumes that gain is godliness. Whereas this position that you're in, slave, you have a wonderful opportunity to be godly in your service to your master. But he calls it wholesome words and the doctrine which is according to godliness. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13. Hold fast the form of sound words, which thou hast heard of me in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus, that good thing which was committed unto thee, keep by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. This form of sound words, as we heard earlier, it has to do with not only the teaching of doctrinal truth, if you will, but also the teaching of sound morals. In 2 Timothy chapter 4. I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Who shall judge the quick and the dead. At his appearing and at his kingdom. Preach the word. Be instant in season and out of season. And notice the nice easy words that Paul uses from this point on. Wipe spiritual noses and pat spiritual bottoms. Tell them the indicatives. Don't ever press them to duty. Is that what he says? No, he says, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. Why? For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. If we were honest, beloved, this pastor included, that's why I said we, we would know the tendency of our own wicked hearts and the remaining corruption that we have. Although they are hearts purified by faith, this threatening here applies to every one of us. We need reproving, we need rebuking, and we need exhortation to keep us straight in our doctrine and in our practice so these are important things please don't hear pastor todd as being mean hear me as desiring to save your souls notice titus chapter one paul will tell timothy if you do these things you'll be a good minister you know and in verse 16 of chapter four on your way to titus He says, take heed unto thyself and to the doctrine, continue in them, 
For in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Well, obviously, no preacher is able to save anybody, but we know what he's talking about there. That's the means of our salvation. In Titus chapter 1, notice in verse 6, If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly, for a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. This witness is true. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. Unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. They profess they know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient, and unto every good work reprobate. I hope you saw there that, you, that it is possible with a good confession to deny the Lord in works. That's what Paul says to Titus there. And that would be a retreat, an apostasy from sound doctrine. Well, this faith then is a purifying faith. It has to do with what we believe and what we practice. All of it is true. We want to obey the truth and keep the sound doctrine of our practice. Both of those things are brought together in Scripture is what it means to believe in Jesus Christ. John will tell us also that this hope of ours, not just our faith, but our hope, is a purifying hope, isn't it? First John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Nope, chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Excuse me for misspeaking there. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now. In other words, not someday. Now. He's not using now as a conjunction there. He's using now as a statement of time. Beloved, it is now that we are the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he, that one, ekenos in the original, that one, Christ, is pure. Hmm. So, beloved, we want to make sure that our faith, our hope, these are purifying things. Um, Our faith, which we studied in verse 21, is then brought to a greater expression in verse 22. This ties our context together. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit. 
to unfeigned love of the brethren. Notice those various steps that are being described. What is the mechanism then of this purity? According to Peter, it is twofold. The mechanism of this purity is, number one, it is obedience to the truth, and number two, it is through the Spirit. The Word and Spirit, in other words. And this is what we must have in order to have those hearts that are purified by faith. So, um, like I said earlier, uh, when, when we were reading in 1 Thessalonians, uh, we heard that it was by the word of truth. James will, will, will say that, right? He's the father of lights and who is no variable, neither shadow of turning. By his own will, he begat us by the word of truth. Uh, we will also hear that we are born again by the truth at the end of this passage, by the word. And the word of man avails nothing. But Jesus will tell Nicodemus, unless you're born of water and of the spirit, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Right? And so all over the scriptures, in some cases, word and spirit are brought together. In some cases, it's the spirit. And in some cases, it's the word. Why do you think, when we turn to John chapter 3, that Jesus would speak to Nicodemus and tell him, you must be born of the Spirit? Why would that be? Because as a Pharisee, he had the Word. He would have been very conversant with the Word of God. And Jesus is telling him, yeah, you have the Word. I I would acknowledge that. But you don't have the Spirit. Ye, all you Pharisees, must be born again. You have the Word. You're teachers of the Word. But you're not born again. Because you have not the Spirit. But in these other places where we might think the enthusiasts would have the day. Who are the enthusiasts? Those those are those folks who want the Spirit without the Word. And having the Spirit without the Word is akin to, you know, uh, well, the Holy Spirit has told me this. The Holy Spirit has told me that. I always want to talk to someone like that and tell them, yes, the Holy Spirit has told you in 66 books what you should be hearing. And these other things that you're talking about, they may be voices, but there's no guarantee that they're the Spirit. Beloved, these must go together as Peter brings them together. There is obedience to the truth Through the Spirit. The truth here I take for being that body of truth that is the complete, understood, objective Christian faith that is presented in the books of the Bible, Old Testament, and that are that time being written in the New Testament. And Peter will make this clear himself, won't he? Turn with me to 2 Peter. Let's hear Peter's mindset, Peter's own mindset on the Scriptures. In 2 Peter chapter 1, first of all, verse 17, what is he saying there? For he, that is Jesus, received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, 
whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth into a, in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were born along, carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter says, you guys who want to believe in signs without the word, okay, all right, I hear you. I've got a sign. You know what the sign I have is? I was with Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. I saw his garments become white and glistening like no fuller could white them. I saw Moses and Elijah standing there with him talking. I was the guy that said, it's good that we should be here. Let's make three tabernacles. One for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for you, Jesus. Not only that, but I heard the voice booming out of heaven. This is my beloved son. Hear ye him. I heard all of that. However, we have a more sure word of prophecy. You hear that? You hear what Peter says? The Bible is clearer and more sure than Moses and Elijah, a voice booming out of heaven, and a shining robed Christ seen on a mountain. The Bible is more sure than that. Wow. What does Peter think about the Bible? Notice in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye might be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Peter says it's not just the Old Testament prophets that were carried along by the Spirit. It's us apostles as well. You, you take heed to them and to us. And then a little bit later on in chapter 3, he will say, verse 15, an account that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest or wrestle or twist as they also do the other scriptures unto their own destruction. What did Peter think of Paul's writing? Oh, well, you know, Peter and Paul, they didn't get along very well. I don't think so. I don't think that's true. I think that Peter had great respect for a fellow apostle writing the very word of God. So Peter's not confused here in 1 Peter chapter 1. You have purified your souls in obeying the truth. That objective body of knowledge presented to us in the scriptures. Notice, through the spirit, because unless the Lord opens your heart, it will not be opened. To unfeigned love of the brethren, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. And so... 
this first section then teaches us, or, or this first verse teaches us, that the word and spirit go together in the purification of our hearts. And by purification of our hearts, this is nothing other than regeneration. It's having our hearts sprinkled, right? Such that they should be purified, such that we might receive all of the word of God, all the doctrines, and all of the commandments, and that we do that because our hearts have been opened by the Spirit of God, and those truths are being illumined to our minds by the Spirit of God. This is part and parcel of faith that we were talking about in verses 18 through 21. So Peter will continue that discussion and he'll say that this faith is a faith in the truth that leads to an obedience of the truth. So next week what I would like to do then is I'd like to talk with you about the Spirit of God. Maybe there's a little bit of precursor that we can do in the last few minutes that remain. I'll tell you what, let's do something else. Let's leave that for next week. There's, there's one more thing I want to do before we close, and it's found in First Peter chapter, no, First Timothy chapter four. Forgive your poor pastor; he's confused today. First Timothy, chapter four. At the beginning of that passage, the apostle will begin to speak about. Obeying something that is not the truth. Listen to what he says very carefully. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. <clears throat> if thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up, in the words of faith and of good doctrine, whereunto thou hast attained. Here we are, back to doctrine, being married to practice once again, aren't we? Okay, so remember what Peter said, and we're going to, we're going to do a counterpoint to what Peter said. Peter said, you have purified your souls uh, in obeying the truth by the word or through the Spirit of God, right? Obeying the truth through the Spirit, Unto unfeigned love of the brethren. They obeyed the truth. Sound doctrine. We said that the truth in, in, includes what you believe and what you practice. It's all of that rolled into one. We don't want to divide that in our thinking. So Paul here is speaking about particular practices that he says the Spirit of God told him will obtain in ages to come. That's how he begins. The Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter days, there's two particular practices, and these will be a species for other kinds of practices like them, like them 
that are not from the Spirit of God. They, are, they come from the mouth of seducers. What are they? What are the two practices? Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats or particular kinds of food. We recognize that in our day. We're not, we're not a prophet. We're not an apostle, right? But we do recognize because of the, the advantages of history and some good sound teaching from our Reformed fathers who Paul is talking about here. The apostle here is speaking explicitly of the Roman Catholic Church and then by way of application, any other church or authority that would press to your conscience what we might call seducing spirits, doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. When you start pushing to the people of God, this is how you become holy, and it's not what God said, what have you done? Well, you've left the reservation in that teaching. Now, we don't want to assert that everyone has gone as far as Rome has, that these are seducing spirits, that everyone who makes a mistake and presses some practice to God's people is, uh, in that sense, just like Rome. Absolutely not. We'd never say any such thing because we have to point the fingers at ourselves in doing that. Right? We want to be careful, however, to hear what Paul says. That when these erstwhile churchmen tell their clergy that they cannot marry, when they forbid them to marry, what are they doing? They are preaching a doctrine of devils. It's not the doctrine of Christ. Or when they tell the faithful like they did for a long time until it was changed, that, you know, on Fridays you can't eat red meat. You can have fish, no chicken. You can have vegetables. But every Friday you can't have these foods as a part of your sanctification and holiness. Beloved, that's a doctrine of devils. And it goes for every other kind of of doctrine, whether it's practical or whether it's theoretical, that departs from the truth, departs from Scripture. If I do that, I pray that it's not a damning sin, that I'll be eternally turned away at the gates, right? Because we all make errors. But let us remember that when we do that, when we leave the Scriptures... Beloved, there's no neutrality. We are now teaching the doctrine of devils. If we press that with authority to the people of God, we have indeed gravely erred. Peter says, you didn't do that. You obeyed the truth through the Spirit. That's what we want. We want the pure truth being preached and we want it to be received spiritually in the people of God minister included that's what we're after here and that is Peter's description his follow on of what true faith looks like it is a purifying faith it is in obedience to the truth and it comes through the spirit let's stand and call upon the Lord in prayer Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for 
thy goodness, that thou hast given men the truth. We can speak of that truth objectively, not subjectively. We confess, Lord, that we abhor the language of your truth and my truth. We confess that truth is indeed thine own and that thou art the Lord God of truth and that Jesus declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life. O Lord, we ask, as we have been taught from thy word today, that we would not separate practice and doctrine, that we would not make that unholy separation between the totality of the truth that thou hast presented to us in Scripture. That in hearing thy commandments, our hearts would rise up sweetly unto them, recognizing how far, we, how far short we fall, and yet also reaching toward them, receiving them with faith and love, laying them up in our hearts and practicing them in our lives, that we might love thy good word, all of it. Father, as well we pray, be pleased to send thy spirit. And as thou didst with Lydia so many years ago, thou didst open her heart that she attended upon the things which were taught by the Apostle Paul. Oh Lord, we pray, open our hearts as well that we might attend upon the things that are taught by the Apostle Peter, by the Apostle Paul, and others that we've read today. And Lord, we pray that thou wouldst deliver us from the doctrines and commandments of men and that we would not give heed to seducing spirits, doctrines of devils, Jewish fables, and other such things as they have been mentioned today, but that we would take hold of the truth, that pure word of thine. And in so doing, Lord, that thou wouldst provide what thou hast promised that is the great blessing for hearers. O Lord, that we would not sit at thy feet as the ancients of old did before the prophet Ezekiel and heard his words, but their hearts went after their covetousness. But instead, Lord, that with purified hearts we might receive thy good word through thy spirit and that it may bear fruit in us in unfeigned love toward the brethren and in loyalty and love toward thee. We pray all these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.